take your Bibles and open them up to Ephesians chapter 1, whether it's a hard copy or a Bible app. Go ahead and open up there to Ephesians chapter 1 with me. We put the words on the screen there to help you see at times, but it's good for you to have it open. And, you know, God's Word is always, we kind of define it as, or I guess the Bible defines it as God's Word in its context. So it's helping to see the verses before and after as we're talking through different things. That's why I always want to invite you to open that up. So, uh, so far in our unfolding of this wonderfully uh, unified but long Greek sentence, we have seen uh, three blessings so far for those who are in Christ. The doctrine of our union with Christ uh, is an incredible doctrine. We've seen that we have been predestined to be holy and blameless as God's adopted children. We've seen that God has purchased our redemption so that our sins are fully forgiven. Developing that further in his kindness, God has shown us his mysterious will. So to unite everything, which we read from the affirming passage in Colossians, things on earth and under, under the earth, whether thrones or rulers, dominions, authorities, all things created by him and for him. So God's purpose is to unite up or, or, or to sum up all things um, in Christ Jesus, right? All of heaven's riches are available to us who are, are kept by God's word, by the power of God. And, and this is a, a, a pouring out or a, a, a lavishing on us his grace and kindness toward us in Christ, which is both our salvific or our salvation riches that lead us to forgiveness of sins, but also every spiritual blessing that, number one, you could ever imagine that you need or that you need according to God, God's wealth will not be exhausted. You will never, now hear me, brothers and sisters, hear me, friends, you will never find yourself up against a situation that you, walking by the power of God, when possible in community, in the context of biblical community, with God's word, will not be able to face. It's a promise from 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's nothing, no temptation that's not common to man. It means every kind of temptation, every kind of struggle, someone else has gone through it before you. Now, it's unique. It's, it's, it, there are uniquenesses. There are you know, unique facets to it for sure. And the next words are the best, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but in every temptation, he will provide a way that you might stand up under it. So you may think that what you're going through today is unique to you. Friend, it's not. You may think that what you're going through today is uh, it's not possible for you to glorify God. You might hear that and go, oh, wait, I've been going after the wrong thing. I've been going after getting out of this, right? Raise your hand if you've ever been in a struggle and you think, I just want out. Anybody? Like five honest people here, right? Some of you are like two hands. Yes, that's definitely me. It's true. God will provide a way that you will not just get out of it, but stand up under it. Because sometimes, friends, he does not take you out, but sustains you through. All of the resources that you need are available to you in Christ and freely given to you in Christ. So this morning we're going to see two additional 
blessings or benefits, and we can go ahead and put those up on the screen. This would be number four. Number five, God who is sovereign over all things, purchased, I mean, sorry, purposed to save us. One more slide there. He purposed to save us so that our lives would glorify him. Before the foundation of the world, God purposed to save us so that our lives would glorify him. And then our second point for today, but the fifth blessing overall is that having been sealed with the Spirit, we are secure in Christ. We don't have to wonder is if we, if we fail a temptation, do we lose our salvation? We don't have to wonder if the initiation of our salvation is all of Christ, but holding it depends on us. Let's look at uh, Ephesians 1. We'll read this whole text together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. I mean, something that has happened in the past with an, in, with an ongoing blessing or an ongoing impact. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us and they beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, things in heaven and on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his, um, the purpose of his will, the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, that is Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, you have given us everything in Christ. There is not one thing you have not uh, graciously lavished upon us that we need. And so we ask you now, Lord, to help us take hold of it all by understanding your word as you open our spiritual eyes to understand the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who are in Christ Jesus. We ask this so that we may live day to day, moment by moment, in your resurrection power through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our title this morning, In Christ, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. God, who, parenthetically here, is sovereign over all things, purposed to save us, so that our lives would bring glory to Him, right? We've already talked about this a minute ago, right? God's purpose is to sum up everything in Christ so that our divine inheritance is guaranteed. This is an inheritance that looks both to the future and to the reality of what we are living with now. So down a couple slides, you and I are born again to a living hope. Look at 1 Peter 1 three and four, and see how Peter draws this out. Blessed be or praised be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us 
to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. So there's a really practical side to this truth. This truth is bigger than our, our, our cognitive capacity to understand it all, but yet God has given it to us to, to give us hope, to, to, to give us a vision for the future, but which also sustains us for today. Because we're identified with Christ, our lives ought to look like we identify with Christ. It, it, it ought to make sense that when we state we identify as children of God, that our lives flesh that out. Our lives affirm that reality. 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, right? So we're to love as he loved, we're to help as he helped, we're to care as he cared, we're to share as he shared, we're to sacrifice our own interests and our own welfare for the sake of others, just as Jesus did. And like our Lord Jesus Christ, we are in Before the foundation of the world, we've read it here, we've read it. It, it, Paul deals with it, I think, in every gospel or every epistle that he writes, except for one. God has predestined us to believe. Now, it it means to decide beforehand. Predestined doesn't mean to, to know in advance and therefore decide. That's not actually deciding. It's just acknowledging what somebody else decided. So God says that I am going to elect a people to myself. Now, what we need to do is stop and, and, and see the comfort that that means to bring. This is not something that is uh, intended to be a, a doctrinal bat. It is not intended to be a posturing piece of knowledge. It's not intended to be something that, that, that communicates that somebody knows more or is more spiritual or has a higher truth. No, 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 no. When we talk about predestination, why, why do we do this? Well, number one, because the Bible speaks about it all over the place. Why do we talk about it? Because everything in life is intended to bring all glory to God. Everything in life is intended to bring all glory to God. The terrible circumstance that you feel like you're in right now, and you may be in, and I know we grade those on scales, but every aspect of what you're going through right now is intended to bring all glory to God. That means if you're handling it well, you're bringing glory to God. If you're not handling it well, God in His mercy would bring you understanding and and, and repentance so that even your lack of belief in certain times will eventually bring glory to God as He 
turns your eyes, uh, turns your gaze to look to him. Election places all of the emphasis for our salvation and for sustaining us in the faith on God. John Piper, or not John Piper, uh, John MacArthur refers to this as twin truths. They are, they are truths. That is the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation as well as man's responsibility for the decisions that we make in our actions. Nothing about the doctrine of predestination or election uh, makes us robots before God. No, it's an eternal truth that is outside of time and space and inside of time. We try to reckon with it and we try to understand it. And, and John MacArthur says it's like, like two twin truths, uh, the doctrine of God's sovereign predestination for salvation and the reality of our uh, responsibility to the Lord for our decision making. When God says, come to me, we make a choice. Do I come to the Lord or do I turn and go the other way? We're accountable for those decisions. We're responsible for those decisions. We got up this morning. We made decisions about the things that we're going to wear. We make decisions about whether we're going to trust the Lord. We make all kinds of decisions that we're responsible for. Uh, they are twin truths. They are truths that if you were to stand in the middle of train tracks, we recognize that these tracks are parallel. They run parallel as long as they are a train track that's active, right? They're going to run parallel. But as you stand and you look out into the distance, your perspective makes it look like in time, in distance, in the distance, they actually meet. But we know they don't. But in glory, when the Lord opens our eyes to understand more about who he is and his perfect wisdom, they will meet in then we will understand. Now, we don't try to explain God away. We don't try to, we try to, to understand it more. Sure. We don't apologize for anything that God says in his word about who he is. God is God, friends. And the more you try to make God fit into your box, the more difficult time you will have understanding how God is working in your life. You must accept God as he explains himself to be in the scriptures. John, uh, John, uh, Jonathan Edwards, lots of Johns this morning, I guess. Jonathan Edwards said, the doctrine of election has often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. Let me ask you something. Is your view of God God-centered or man-centered? Does God exist to meet your needs, to solve your problems, to make you happy? Or do you exist to magnify the kindness and the greatness of God? Some doubt this doctrine and, and, and will say, well, it, it's not fair. It's not fair that God would elect some and not, would, would not elect others. And I, to that I say, well, you know what? You're right. In a sense, it's not fair. Not fair. It's not fair that God would devise a way to save people who are rebels to Him. It's not fair that God would choose to send His Son from the glories of heaven to live on this earth, to experience the troubles that we experience, to undergo the grief that we experience, to undergo the pain that we experience, the rejection, the humiliation, so that He would live a a righteous life in every way. Thoughts, deeds, actions, everything Jesus did was perfectly righteous. It's not fair. 
It's not fair that he would be spit upon, that he would be bruised, that he would have a crown of thorns placed upon his head. You want to talk about not fair? That's not fair. It's not fair that he would be driven into the Garden of Gethsemane and say, God, would there be any other way that you could save this people for yourself? And the father says, no. Jesus prays this three times and said, not my will, not my will but yours be done. It's not fair. It's not fair that Jesus would hang on that tree, that he would be mocked, that he would be hit, that he would be mutilated as Isaiah 53 beyond recognition. It's not fair. It's not fair that he would die the death of a robber, that he would die the death of a a murderer, that he would die the death of of an adulterer, that he would die the death of a liar, that he would die the death of, of one who is greedy for more, that he would die the death of one who is coveting, to die the death of the one who gossips. He would die the death of the one who is filled with pride and envy. It's not fair. In fact, it's not even fair that he would need to be raised from the dead by the power of God. The same power that lives and works inside of each one of us so that we might live to the praise of his glorious grace. You're right. It's not fair. But it's not fair in God-centered ways. Brothers and sisters, the way that humanity has run headlong away from the Lord, were God to save one person, is kind. That one soul would be plucked from the eternal fire of hell. That alone is kindness. That alone is mercy. That alone is grace. So predestination shows us God's eternal perspective, God's eternal purpose. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31 says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then he adds, and because of him, because of, because of him, because of the Lord, because of the Lord's wisdom, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, that the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There is nothing about any one of our testimonies. It doesn't matter if you've, if you've been brought out of a past of, of devastation or of a past of, of hurts, habits, and hang-ups or, or addiction or, or, or uh, been abused yourself or been uh, an abuser of others. Anything that you have come out of there is, or, or lived a pretty moral life according to earthly standards, according to worldly standards. There is not one person that can say, but for the grace of God. There go I. God mercifully opened my eyes to save me. 
the test of sound doctrine that it gives all glory to God and none to us. Now, I want to say there are Bible-believing Christians who understand the Scriptures convictionally differently than I do on this matter. And you know what? This is not a doctrine that means you're a Christian or not a Christian. It's important to say that. Everywhere I read, I see this doctrine all throughout the pages of Scripture, from Genesis through all the way through it, through Revelation. Uh, and, and so I don't want to say that it doesn't matter, because it, it deeply matters. The more I see people struggle, the more I see people uh, in pain, uh, the more I, I realize how much people need an understanding of the sovereignty of God in all of life. And so what matters is that, that we live in such a way that declares that God does the working and he ordains everyone our days before one of them came to be. We love Romans 8.28. We love Romans 8.28, right? If you deny, though, that God works all things after the counsel of his will, you rob believers of the comfort that he causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. So is he sovereign or is he not sovereign? The Bible says he is sovereign. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. No one will steal his glory. Now, let me ask you a, a real practical question here. When you, when you give counsel to others, when you, when you encourage others, when you challenge others, maybe it's on social media, maybe it's just in the way that, that you speak. I'm going to give you two examples of, of how this might look. Example number one on the screen here might look something like this. Hey, you've got this. You're strong. God's always got your back. Keep the faith and God will get you through. Now, is there truth in there? Yes, absolutely. Compare that to something like this. I'm praying for you. God has real purpose in your pain. Even though we don't see it right now. So cling to Jesus who will sustain you. He will sustain you. And, and, and let every ounce of your pain, don't minimize it. Don't try to pretend it's not there. Don't try to pass it off. Let every ounce of your pain remind you that compared to the struggles of this life, I'm improvising right here, that according to the struggles of this life, how glorious will be your eternity with Jesus compared to what you're experiencing right now. Use this to point others to the grace of God. I mean, that's what you're telling the one who's struggling. You're saying, I get it, your struggle's real. So take your struggle and point people to Jesus. Point people to Jesus so that Jesus would be magnified, as Paul says, whether by life or by death. God has purposed and he has worked to save us so that our lives would bring glory to him alone. Number two, or point five out of the five blessings, but point number two for today, having been sealed with the Holy Spirit, we are secure in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We see this unfold right in the text here. When you heard the word of truth and you believe the gospel of your salvation, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. There's no second blessing that needs to come. There are no spiritual, uh, miraculous spiritual gifts that you must exhibit in order to really prove yourself to be a Christian or a follower of God. Uh, Charles Hodge, in his commentary, points it out this way. He says, there are three purposes for which a seal is used. And then he illustrates each one. A seal is used to, to confirm an object or a document 
as being true or genuine, right? It'd be like the seal of the United States, which appears on every piece of currency. You know what country the currency belongs to because of the seal that is on it. Number two, a seal is used to mark a thing as one's property, right? Like a, a nameplate or a flyleaf on a book, right? I got a little stamp thing I do on books when I get them just because I lose things and somebody sees it, they'll, they'll know whose it is and, and bring it back or just be blessed by it, which is fine. Three, there's a seal that's used to mark something for uh, something fast or secure, to hold it fast or secure, like the seal of the Sanhedrin placed upon the tomb of Christ. Each one of these three things illustrates something important about the Spirit's work, that the Holy Spirit verifies that the one receiving Him is really God's child. And Paul, Paul lays this out in Romans 8, 16, and 17. He says, the Spirit Himself testifies or, or bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, well, then we're heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says that this is the chief point of all, all of Paul's reference in, in verse 14, and he spends several chapters on it unfolding what it looks like to have the mark or the seal of the Spirit on us as believers. And so the Spirit of God marks our life so that as we live, we see Galatians talks about the fruit of the Spirit. You see, sometimes people who want to do religion can do what you might call fruit stapling, as others have called it, right? We go and we pull fruit off of this uh, live tree over here, and we staple it to our own lives so that though we might actually not be saved, we have enough fruit stapled to make ourselves think, for a period of time at least, that we are genuine followers of Christ. We know the, the right rules to do. We know how to speak. We know how to behave. We know how to, where to go to church. We know how to go to church. We know how to sing. We know how to do these different things. And it's fruit that's attached to something that's dead. The moment that fruit gets severed from the tree that brings it life, it begins to die. But it can look alive for a while, even while it's attached to something whose roots are not in Christ. So how do we know if we're in the Spirit? Well, when we heard the gospel of our salvation and we recognized it as truth and not man's opinion, right? When you heard the word of truth, something in you said, yes, that's right. At some point in your life, something in you went from, ah, this doesn't make sense to me, to all of a sudden, yes, yes, that's true. God is holy. And I've stopped making excuses for myself. I'm not holy. And you recognize that as truth. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They're foolish to him. And he doesn't, he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, right? So the second way that you know is the second part of that uh, process, if you will, we believed it to be true. We heard the truth about God and we believed it to be true. We confessed our sin and we trusted Christ in faith and were saved. I, I read this passage last week, and so I'll read it and then I'll keep moving. But 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6, in their case, meaning those who have not believed the gospel. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers 
to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the gospel, knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Third, the Spirit of God replaced our hopelessness and our despair with hope in God's promises. We see that in the next chapter, Ephesians chapter 2. Remember that one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant's promise, having no hope and without God in this world. And so the fruit of this inheritance is that the Holy Spirit began producing fruit in us. It's the fruit of the Spirit, not eight ways for living. When we abide with Christ, we increasingly develop the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Come on, kids, you know this. You know the song. Ready? Everybody, all the kids in here, say it with me. Ready? Love, joy, peace. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Would it help if I did this song? Fruit of the Spirit's not a coconut. Right? Yeah. I'm going to stop there. <laughs> One more time. This is the doctrine of progressive sanctification, that, that in the Spirit of God, the Lord increasingly causes his spirit to be made more visible in our lives. We increasingly become more like Jesus as we live life in submission to the Lord. And we have a security of knowing that we belong to Christ forever. Now, the Apostle Paul gives lots of of conditional statements in the words. Sometimes they're hypothetical conditional statements, which mean, say, if you are in Christ, or earlier we read it in, uh, I don't know if it was John, I don't have the reference here right now, but provided you suffer with him. Meaning, if you are in Christ, you will suffer with him and therefore show yourselves to be children of God. Being in Christ, it enables us to walk in his ways to the praise of his glory. Let's put verse 14 up on the screen real fast. Where Paul says, the spirit, just go up one slide. Uh, The spirit is a guarantee or a pledge or a down payment of our inheritance. Until, not if, until we acquire possession of it. What good is a promise? From the God who saves us. From the God who brings life to those who are without life. For the God who opens our eyes. If we must sustain it on our own strength. It's contrary to the way that the Lord says that he saves us. We read this this morning in, a, in our Sunday school class this morning. Such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency, our sufficiency as ministers of this new covenant of God's grace comes 
from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Someone has pictured this, the divine and human sides of salvation in this way. When you, when, you, uh, when you look toward heaven, you see a sign that reads, whoever will may come. And after you get into heaven, you look back and you see the other side of the same sign that says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Isn't that helpful? Isn't that helpful to realize that you and I are bound in time and space? God's eternal. It's not 2021 to God. It's infinity. It's eternal. It's eternity, which has no beginning and no end. In Christ, you've been sealed with the Spirit, and God has purposed in Christ to save us so that our lives would glorify Him. Do you know how many people around the world need to hear this glorious message. Let me tell you, friends, this does not mean, well, because God has predestined people to salvation, he'll take care of it happening, and I don't have to be a part of it. You know why? That's contrary to everything else we see in the Bible. And God will not contradict himself. God has given us a command that you should go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded to you. Every truth, every glorious truth that Paul celebrates is in this single Greek sentence is intended to be, and he says it in verse 6, 12, and 14, to the praise of his glory. Or to the praise of his glorious grace. Think about this. Isn't it amazing that the creator of the world, the sustainer of all that is, created a way for us to remember what he has done for us in Christ. As we talk about this, uh, the reality of our union in Christ, being co-heirs with Christ, God, God created a way to remind us when we gather on an ongoing basis that he gave his body for us, that his blood was spilt for the remission of sins. This is a meal, friends, for Christian in the context of Christian community because God is working to make us one in Christ. And so as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we, we do so with that reality in mind, a reality that was settled before the foundation of the world, a, a promise that you and I will endure by the grace of God, which saved us and sustains us. Parents, this is a great opportunity for you to share the gospel with your kids. Remind them of it. Well, they've heard it before. Exactly. Keep going. Or maybe flip the script and let your kids tell you the gospel. Maybe you want to worship and sing as the worship team leads us and stand and worship together. Maybe you want to remain seated and talk with your kids. All of that's okay. All of that's acceptable. Maybe Maybe as we sing about the amazing grace of God, the grace of God through God's Spirit overwhelms our heart to bring us to the point of saying, you know what? I've had this dissension with a brother or sister in this place long enough. It's time to let it go. It's time to let it go because Jesus laid down his life on the cross for me while I was his enemy. And so even during communion this morning, you may go to that brother or sister, that friend. Say, you know, 
We can't talk about it all right now, but I've been harboring something in my heart. I'm ready to lay it down. Maybe you know someone in this room that's struggling. Why don't you go pray with them? Why don't you go encourage them? Can we go one step further in vulnerability? Maybe you just need prayer. And during communion, as people are worshiping in song, you know, maybe you worship in surrender. And you just lift your hand. I'm just going to mention two ways. One, if you want us to come and serve communion to you, lift your hand for sure. But if you need prayer and we're worshiping, you just lift your hand and hold it up. And you won't see if the body of Christ will come around you to pray for you, support you, encourage you, minister to you throughout the week. Or is there someone that's been an encouragement to you? Someone you can get up and and go speak to and say, I want you to know how your faith in difficult times has encouraged me in mine. This is one of the reasons we adjusted how we're doing community to give freedom for the body of Christ, for the spirit of God to express himself as we are ministering together, learning together, worshiping together as we remember all that he's done for us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we worship you. Because you alone are worthy of all of our praise. In fact, you're worthy of all of our cumulative praise. And so, Lord, we exalt you and you alone. We pray that as we remember your death and burial and resurrection, Lord, that we would be filled with joy. And that that joy would carry over into the difficulties and struggles that we face. That it would reinstill, reinvigorate our hope. That in your kindness, you have, have not allowed us to face anything that with you and in the context of biblical community that we can't, or that, 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 yeah, that we can't face. You've given us everything that we need. And this is a reminder because it begins at our salvation. And we see it fleshed out as we live and walk with you. Lord, there are those here this morning that are faint hearted, and I pray, Lord that you would encourage them. There may be those in this room who are being stubborn and are refusing to listen to you. Lord, in your kindness, would you admonish them? Not not to be mean, not to get them back, but because that admonishment, that, that rebuke is a sign of your love. And so may it be well received and be glorified in all, we pray through Jesus' name, amen.